Hey everyone, it is podcasting time, and this is Just Another Jerk, Dispatches from Japan. As always, I am your host, Jonathan Isaacson. Uh, please remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever it is that you get your podcasts. You know, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Pandora in the U.S., available in all those places. And while you're there, please remember to rate the show. Um, and if you got a little bit of extra time, give it a review. Uh, and you may have noticed that today my intro is a little bit more subdued than usual because I'm recording this and I'm going to be uploading this on March 11th, 2021, which is 10 years since, you know, an earthquake, a 9.0, magnitude 9.0 earthquake rocked northeastern Japan and you know that triggered a major tsunami that killed if you if you if you add the numbers of deaths and people still unaccounted for almost over 18,000 people and it also triggered the the uh, Fukushima number 1 power nuclear plant to explode um just a little quick side note I think I mentioned this when I've talked about this before I don't know why they keep calling it Fukushima Daiichi because Daiichi just means number one. It's not like it's the name of a place. It's literally Fukushima number one nuclear station. Because there's a number. There's also Fukushima Daini. There's a number two station as well. But whatever. Anyway, I, I have some thoughts about all of this, but they aren't very focused. There's no. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know how to tie them all together. So. Yeah, you know, I I do want to share my ideas, do want to share my thoughts. Um, so I, I, that's why I'm doing this. I did an episode last year as well on the ninth anniversary of the disaster. So you can go back and check that out if you want. Um, go have to go all the way back to episode number four, um, back way at the beginning of the podcast. And I imagine that I will repeat myself sometimes. I'll do my best not to repeat a lot. But who, I, I can't guarantee that I won't say some of the same things. But there's a lot of new things I have to say. So go back and listen to episode number four if you want to hear my, uh, my thoughts on the ninth anniversary. I think I talk a little more. I talk more about my personal experience in that one. So, yeah. Ten years. Ten years after one of the biggest earthquakes ever recorded. Um, if you go back to the beginning of records, which start, start I think, in 1900, the 9.0 in 2011 was the fourth largest, earth, fourth strongest earthquake ever recorded. So, you know, and it was followed by a tsunami that very few people have ever seen the likes of because those kind of tsunamis happen really rarely. You know, 10 years, I mean, sure, in some ways it seems like a lot of times, but in some ways it's no time at all. You know, there's still a lot of places along the coast here in Miyagi, up in Iwate, down in Fukushima, that they haven't come back from the tsunami at all in some places. Some places are doing well, but some places just aren't. And some places probably never will, at least not in the lifetime of people who remember the event. So... Yeah. So there are a couple of parks that my family, you know, that we like to go to. You know, they have very good playground equipment, lots of slides that my daughter really likes. And 
of all the playgrounds we like to visit, there's at least three of them. I th- I'm pretty sure it's just, maybe, I think it's three that they, they are in areas that were inundated in the tsunami. You know, there are markers at the in the parks that show you how high the water was. And at these parks and in a lot of the areas kind of along the coast, there are now these emergency hills. You know, these are places that everyone who's in the park, they can run to higher ground in case another major tsunami hits. And that is really important because, you know, from what I've seen and what I, you know, I was reading, you know, I don't, I, this is something I don't remember personally, but in some of the coastal areas of Sendai, people had, you know, less than 10 minutes to, you know, between the, between the, when the quake start, when the quake happened and when the tsunami came. Um, so, you know, 10 minutes is not a lot of time, um, so there are these kind of series of emergency hills along the coast now. And the areas around these parks and around these these emergency hills are pretty much empty. Most of the trees, all the neighborhoods that line the Tezan Canal. So there's this little canal that runs along the coast in Miyagi. Um, it's been actually it's actually a very very old canal. It was started way back like several hundred years ago um and it can it basically provides a, a safe passage between two major rivers um it made it for easier shipping of goods i think between a couple areas in the uh the date clans holdings the the date clan they were the they were the people who were in charge of this area of japan the feudal lords i guess of, of this area and so there's this canal that runs along the coast and pretty much all of the houses are there, there's nothing most of the trees that were along the canal are gone and and i thinking back i now realize that when i first came to japan i had met this person online and we hung out a couple once or twice i guess, I guess it was only once we hung out in in uh, sendai and we went canoeing, and I realized now that it was on this canal. So this is way back, like, you know, 15 years ago at this point. But yeah, so I, I actually was in that canal back when it was tree-lined and, you know, full of... There, there were communities along the canal, but now there's nothing. Um, yeah, so the land... And, and there are these parks that are kind of in that area, and around the parks, it's kind of a wasteland um so yeah the, the, they're very much the land in the area still very clearly bears the scars of the disaster this is in miyagi and from what i hear it's a lot worse down in fukushima so down in fukushima because fukushima also had to deal with the nuclear power plant disaster now the damage down there is huge and as much as anything, the damage is to the reputation of Fukushima. Now, obviously, yes, having a nuclear power plant melt down is really bad. It's not a good thing. But as f- everything I've read, the actual observable health toll from the meltdown is a lot smaller than you probably think it is. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not any nuclear 
disaster. It's a problem, yes. But that'd be the same if, if a coal plant exploded and sent coal dust everywhere. It'd be the same if an oil refinery just burns and sends, you know, the vapors from burning oil. It'd be bad. But the actual number of people who have been directly, physically, like they had their health damaged by the nuclear disaster is a lot smaller than you probably think. And in fact, it's actually true of Chernobyl as well. Now, this is not a discussion I'm going to get into. Nuclear plants having meltdowns is obviously not a good thing. But the actual toll is probably like the, the, the physical toll on the health of the people in the area is probably smaller than you think it is. I get, I'll leave it on this. The damage done by the power plant physical on the physical health of the people is less than I thought it really was. And I'll leave it there. But the blow to the reputation of the area has been a huge problem for Fukushima. You know, kids who got reloco- relocated from the exclusion zones, or anywhere from Fukushima, that for that matter, they got bullied. There are people to this day who kind of keep it secret that their their hometown is where the power, the nuclear plant was. Now, to this day, ten years on, they're still keeping it secret that they're from these towns that immediately surround the power plant. You know farmers, fishers from the area, they can't sell their wares because the name Fukushima is tainted. Even if the crops, the fish are that they're selling, well within the safety guidelines for radiation set out by the government. Again, I'm not going to get into the debate, should we trust the government, whatever, that's another debate for another day. But if everything's above board, their their, their crops, their fish... It is within the legal limit, with well, well below the safe limits from what I've read. So they're still having a problem selling it, though, because the name Fukushima is now tainted. The same way Chernobyl, right? That for the in the world, the, the that area has had a really hard time now, and you know, in general probably in part due to the small number of people who've returned uh, to the area. Like I was just watching the news this morning and, you know, there's a town pretty close to the, not, not the town where the plant, the plant power plant is located, but like the neighboring town, the population is now one tenth of what it was before the disaster. So people haven't come back and this is probably contributing to the problem of redevelopment because, a lot of places in coastal Fukushima, redevelopment has been very, very slow compared to, say, Miyagi and Iwate. So, yeah, it's been 10 years. So, about a month ago, so this was would have been, well, I could tell you what, it, what about, it was February 13th. So, we had... Another pretty major earthquake here in Sendai. It was actually the, the, the epicenter was off the coast of Fukushima, um, so a little bit south of where the big one was, but still in the rel- general vicinity of the, the big one 10 years ago. And from what I gather, it, it, seismologists were saying that this is an aftershock, you know, 10 years on. And from what I gather to qualify to be an aftershock, 
It has to do with the frequency of earthquakes of a certain magnitude in the general area of the quake. So let's say, for example, in this case, uh, the magnitude 7 plus. So if the magnitude of 7 plus earthquakes in this general area is higher than it was before the main earthquake, it's considered an aftershock. But from what I've read from this or and listened to the seismologist who was explaining this, she said that basically it's a semantic difference. It doesn't really mean anything because an aftershock, a foreshock, the main shock, they're all just earthquakes. They're the same mechanism. It's just basically was what did it trigger another one or not? It, it, it's, it's a semantic difference. It doesn't really make any difference as to the actual mechanisms of the quake. Um, but. Anyway, so yeah, so we had this earthquake. It was a 7.3, a magnitude 7.3, about a month ago. And it was 11 p.m. on a Saturday night. And where we live, out in kind of western Sendai, kind of out in the, the kind of the mountainous region of Sendai, the earthquake registered a strong 5 on the Shindo scale, which is a measure, it's a, it's a Japanese earthquake scale. And just a quick a quick note about the Shindo scale. So it measures surface movement. So you will have different uh, you will have different numbers, different uh, ratings for different places. So one earthquake will have many different levels of shaking. Right, the further you get from the epicenter, the lower the number will get because there's less shaking. So, so yeah, that's the Shindo scale. And just one real quick kind of side note, kind of detour here i want to talk about magnitude earthquakes generally speaking are not measured on the richter scale anymore i know a lot of people still use richter scale they're not the richter scale is not used really um the magnitude which is the number attached to earthquakes so you know last last month it was a 7.3 magnitude 7.3 the big one 10 years ago was magnitude 9.0 so that's not the Richter scale. It is called the moment magnitude scale. And it's similar to the older Richter scale, but it's a much more accurate measure of the energy released in an earthquake. I think you, you can maybe think of it a little bit like um, uh, with physics with Einstein and Newton, right? Newtonian physics will work in a lot of contexts. It still gives you a pretty accurate representation of what's happening, but it breaks down at some point where you, and then Einsteinian physics is a lot more accurate in those more kind of, you need the more granular details. That's kind of what I, how I understand the Richter scale and the moment magnitude scale work. Richter scale. Yeah, it's, it's not a bad representation, but it's not the best. It could be better. And the moment magnitude scale is better. So, um, yeah, but the moment, moment magnitude scale, um, like I say, if you want more details, go look it up. Wikipedia has a long article about kind of all the different mag uh, earthquake scales. Um, moment magnitude, it measures the energy at the uh, epicenter, how much energy is released in an earthquake. It doesn't tell you about the actual intensity of surface movement. Nothing about that. Now, and that's where Japan uses, it's called the Shindo scale. Um, and the Shindo scale gives you the, 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 the movement of the earth in a specific 
like the surface in a specific location. And there are other scales that are very similar. Um, there, I think it's the Mercalli intensity, Mercalli, M-E-R-C-A-L-L-I. Um, I'm guessing Italian because I think Italy is a pretty seismically active place as well. So there's a lot of movement. Um, so the Mercalli intensity scale, and that's used much more around the world than the Shindo scale. Like that's just in Japan, but they're very similar. Like they measure surface movement. And so here in Japan, we use the Shindo scale, and it goes from 1 to 7. And there are a couple of subdivisions, you know, weak and strong, 5s and 6s. And so, yeah, so that that's the ja- the Japanese scale. And just to put it simply, the bigger the number of the Shindo scale or the Mercalli scale, the stronger the shaking in that location. So the big one 10 years ago, that hit 7 in a few places. Now, if it's a seven, you're not going to be standing up, probably. Um, You will get knocked down. You'll get tossed around. Even if it's in the six, like especially a strong six, standing up is pretty difficult, um, especially if you don't have anything to hold on to. Now, the earthquake about a month ago at the strongest shaking area, so places kind of down in southern Miyagi and kind of in Fukushima, there were places that recorded a strong six. Um, not where we live, where we live, it looked like it was probably a strong five. So not, you, you can stand up, um, not easily, but you can stand during a strong five. It's yeah, it's probably not the best idea. Um, so yeah. Anyway, that's, 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 that's a quick little detour into the um, world of, uh, earthquake scales um it's actually kind of if you're into that kind of thing it is kind of interesting go ahead look it up look at earthquake measurement scales um there's a lot of different ones a lot more than i realized so like i say about a month ago we had our magnitude 7.3 shindo 5 where we live um earthquake and that was the strongest shaking that i have ever personally experienced and our apartment is on the fourth floor so shaking and swaying is amplified. And it was a fairly long earthquake. Um, maybe half a minute, 45 seconds. Not exactly sure because, you know, you're not looking at the clock usually for that kind of thing. It, it lasted quite a while. Our daughter, she slept right through the whole thing, which is fine. Um, there wasn't any danger. In the end, our place, our apartment, I mean, nothing broke at all. We had one or two books that had fallen, um, a deck of playing cards I think fell off a bookshelf, uh, some the spice some of the spice bottles in the spice rack tumbled off the kitchen counter. That was you know that was kind of it. No, we didn't have any dishes break. Nothing. At work, my office, I think I had four books on the floor, um, a couple papers, and you know the book like my books had fallen down on the bookshelf, but they stayed on the bookshelf, so I just kind of had to prop them back up. My cleanup in my office, two minutes, and I was done. So, yeah. So the next day, after the earthquake, I we, we, my family and I, we went out to pick up a portable gas burner. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things a lot of Japanese families have, just in case, you know, your gas goes out so you can still cook. Um, and so we went to a big box hardware store, and... There was a little bit of damage. I mean, a couple ceiling tiles looks like they had fallen down. 
there was some cracks in the drywall. Um, one of the interior, this was an interior wall, not an exterior wall. So it wasn't, a, it was not a structural damage, but the, one of the interior walls, like some of the aluminum kind of framework inside the wall was exposed. And there was one piece that was pretty twisted, but that was kind of it. That was really the damage to the big box hardware store. I mean, our apartment building, there might be one small crack in like paint, not even the wall, like the paint cracked, I think. Um, it, it, yeah, so that, that kind of brings me to another point I want to talk about is that when it comes to earthquake safety, Japan is a really good place to be. I mean, I mean, obviously, given the frequency of major earthquakes, that's kind of an obvious and you know a good thing. Because, um, I mean, here in Japan, a magnitude 7 earthquake, it's just not an unusual occurrence. So I, I was looking on Wikipedia, it's kind of a list of major earthquakes in Japan. And so if we just take magnitude 7 and higher. Since I came to Japan 16, what is it? What are we in? 16 years? Almost 17 years at this point? Almost 17 years. There have been, uh, where is it? Where, where did I find the number? Um, right. There's been about an average, there's been, I think it was 16 or 17 earthquakes of seven or more, magnitude seven or more since I've been in Japan. One a year essentially. If you go down to a six or higher, there have been at least 27 6.0, magnitude 6.0 and higher since I've been in Japan. So the earthquakes happen here a lot, right? That magnitude 7.3 earthquake that we had last month, you know, maximum Shindo strong six. Deaths, zero. Injuries, about 150-ish collapsed buildings, none that I heard about. Um, there were a couple spots where like there was a, a fairly significant change in ground level, but, you know, I, I, I mean like 10, 15 centimeters, which I mean, that's noticeable, but it's not a huge, huge, huge difference. But yeah, it's noticeable. So that was that. Uh, that happened. Um, so yeah, there was some damage in that earthquake, but not huge amounts of damage. Um, you know, the, some of the pillars holding the Shinkansen wires, they were damaged. So it took about a week, 10 days to fix the Shinkansen. So it could be back to full, to run the full, um, the, the full, the full route. But again, no major damage. The man-made structures, generally speaking, held up pretty well and they always seem to do so. The, the, the apartment we live in here now, it was here, you know, it's been around since well before the 2011 9.0 earthquake. And I, I, mean, I don't know how much damage it received in that. I'm sure there was some that it, it had some damage that got fixed after that major earthquake. But it, I mean, just for the vast majority of people, you know, even people, you know, towns that are hit by the strongest shaking. So now I'm talking about the, the earthquake a month ago. Even the places where there was, you know, strong six shaking, life got back to normal, you know, maybe by Monday at the latest. Things just, I mean, this is a good place 
to be for earthquakes. Um, now, obviously, some of it comes down to luck is maybe not the right word, but I mean, it's it, it's it comes closest. So, as I said, the earthquake the the month ago it hit at 11 p.m. on Saturday during the coronavirus. So there probably weren't as many people out and about as would have been otherwise. And maybe that would have caused more problems, but, you know, it, it wasn't. You know, um, another thing about the earthquakes up here in Tohoku is they have been off the coast. So the, the epicenter hasn't been directly below the ground. And so the worst of the shaking isn't happening on land the worst of the shaking is happening on the seafloor well what about tsunamis you say so with the one a month ago apparently the earthquake it wasn't in the right place it was it was deep enough that it didn't trigger a tsunami i mean there was a there was a 20 centimeter tsunami so that's less than a foot um and that's another thing in english when most people say tsunami they're thinking a huge destructive way but in japanese tsunami can be five ten you know 20 centimeters you can have you can have a two inch tsunami that is a thing it happened a five centimeter tsunami it's an earth it's, it's an earthquake caused wave basically so you can have a tiny tiny tsunami a tsunami doesn't have to be this huge destructive thing it can be unnoticeable but Apparently, so like say the one a month ago, it was in such a place that we had a tiny, tiny tsunami, so there wasn't a big deal. And so, like I say, I think there is certainly an element of luck in the location and the kind of earthquake as to how much damage we get. And in that vein, I guess, had the massive 2011 earthquake, had it hit at 11 o'clock, you know, it would have been different. But it hit at 2.46 p.m. in the middle of the afternoon. You know, had it been the middle of the night, I think the tsunami would have taken a much larger toll, right? People would have been groggy, they would have been confused, pitch black, all the power was out because of the earthquake. You know, I think people would, a lot more people would have died had, had the 2011 earthquake hit when this earthquake a month ago hit or if it had hit three in the morning, two in the morning, I think it would have been a much worse disaster, but yeah, it didn't. So like I said, there is some, I say luck's not the right word, but there is whatever the right word is. It's something akin to luck, but for horrible, horrible things. So yeah, this most recent earthquake, we didn't lose power at all. I mean, I know some places lost some power and some water and there there was a there was a hotel in Fukushima prefecture that had a waterfall coming down the main staircase. But you know, that that's obviously not good. That'll take some time to clean up. So that was one place that obviously didn't get back to business as usual by Monday. But you know, by and large, the power grid was fine in this, you know, this earthquake a month ago. You know, I guess all this kind of bit that's talking about the, this recent earthquake, this is kind of to say that, you know, I, I remember seeing on, on Facebook after that earthquake a month ago, everyone worried about, oh, no, there's a big earthquake in Japan that, you know, seven, you know, 7.0, 7.3, that's a big earthquake. And 
Yeah, I mean, in some places. But in Japan, I mean, Japan is well-equipped. Um, so yeah, it, it, we were fine. It's not a big earthquake here. Um, it can be, again, depending on where it is. Like the, the 1995 uh, Hanshin earthquake. That's the one that hit Kobe and Osaka. Um, back when I remember that one when I was in 95. So I would have been just, I would have been in junior high school, I guess. Junior high, yeah, junior high school. I remember, I mean, that one was a big one. It was, but in terms of magnitude, it was the same as the one a month ago. It was a 7.3. So, yeah, that, but that one happened almost directly under land. And so the shaking was a lot more violent on the land. And it was also much more, it was centered pretty much in the middle of a very densely populated urban area. So that obviously that's going to factor in as well. So, uh, yeah, what was that? Where was, where, I don't know where I was going with this, but anyway, due to Japan's earthquake preparedness, building codes, whatever, as long as there isn't a tsunami, Japan is a good place to ride out an earthquake. Generally speaking, you know, it has the money to take care of, you know, measures to deal with earthquakes. So that makes a difference. And after that, after, after last month's earthquake, so I was talking with my mother, we were talking about the earthquake and she asked me, do earthquakes have a sound? Is there a specific sound to an earthquake? And, you know, maybe that seems like an odd question to some people, but I mean, maybe it doesn't, I don't know. But to me, it doesn't seem like a weird question. Um, you know, I grew up a lot of my, a lot of my youth I spent in Illinois, in the Chicago area. And tornadoes are a very common thing. And I remember this would have been in the nineties. There was in the 1990s, there was, there was a, uh, I guess we would, it was kind of a weather documentary produced by WGN, which is one of Chicago's, uh, TV stations. And the name of the documentary, and if you ask anyone who grew up in Chicago area at this time, they'll remember at least the name. It sounded like a freight train. The sound of a, of a tornado. People say, well, it doesn't really sound, the closest thing I can say is it sounds like a freight train. And so to me, asking what an earthquake sounds like, it makes sense. Yeah, what does an earthquake sound like? Now, when it comes to an earthquake... If you were outside, away from buildings, other things that could rattle around to make to make noise, I don't know, right? Does the earth itself make a sound when it is shaking? Now, I imagine that, you know, in like an extremely violent earthquake, that yes, there has to be some sort of noise, but maybe in a small one, probably not. I can, I can attest to that because I've been out of my bike on during small earthquakes and I, I don't know didn't notice anything. But if you're in a building, there's a very definite sound that you you come to know. And it's the sound of everything around you shaking and clattering. If you want an example of this, there's a video on YouTube. And it was taken inside the Sendai airport during the big quake 10 years ago. Um, I'll put a link to the to the video in the description of the episode, um, no one is 
no one gets injured in the video. Um, it's not upsetting in that kind of way, but it is still a pretty upsetting video if you've ever lived through a major earthquake. Um, and even more so if you can understand what they're saying. Even if you don't, it's pretty, it, it's, you can, the vo their voices say a lot. And the sound that you hear, if you've ever been in an earthquake, it's a sound that's really hard to forget. You know, it's the sound of an entire building and everything in it just being tossed around by the earth. And in this case, it just doesn't stop. In the video, the shaking goes on for more than two minutes. And the video actually picks up mid-shake, right? I'm guessing that probably the person recording, they noticed, okay, this earthquake is getting pretty big. It's starting to go a little bit long. So they started to record it. And that means that the earthquake was probably around three minutes long, which is an eternity for an earthquake. One amazing thing about this video in the airport, none of the windows, at least that we can see in the video, break. If you watch the video, you'll understand why I say this is amazing. Because it is a violent shaking. So, after the shaking stops, everyone evacuates. The video cuts out for a bit and it picks up back outside. And once they're outside, everyone is promptly told to go back inside the airport and up to the third floor, up to the third floor of the terminal building. Because the earth, the, the uh, airport, the Sendai airport is only a few hundred meters from the coast. And so it got swamped by the tsunami. I don't think anyone died at the airport. I could be wrong. I would have to double check that, but it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't a place of huge human disaster. Um, during the, or the tsunami. Um, because the airport building, by all accounts, like I say again, windows aren't breaking. It seems to be a very well-built and a pretty good place to shelter in the disaster. And I guess this kind of brings me to one of the last, one of the last points I guess I'll talk about. Again, I know this is not very focused. I, I don't know exactly what I want to say with all this, but just some thoughts. So, one of the last points that I want to talk about is just how powerful the videos are. I remember watching all this unfold in real time. I was living, not, not where, except we live in Sendai now, but at the time, 10 years ago, we're living up in the Sapporo area. And in Sapporo, right, it was pretty strong shaking. I think it was a Shindo 4, again, like I said. It, it gets smaller the, the further out you go. But four, four is still a pretty good shake. Um, I mean, it was strong enough that at, at where the, I was kind of at work at the time, was in my school, in the office. But we had to evacuate our building three times that day because of there was a, four, a very strong foreshock, the main shock, and then one more pretty strong aftershock, all while I was at, at, at work. Um, and, you know, we, people, then once things people realize okay something this is big teachers they started tuning in on their computers because there was streaming video from the news stations at that point and i think i think there was one tv in the teacher's room but you know we started just seeing these images around fukushima miyagi iwate and the tsunami 
um, was just incredible and terrible and terrifying and awful and awesome, like in the biblical sense. Um, so yeah, I saw, I remember in the time the videos were really, I mean, I was shook and I still am when I watch those videos. So there's this video from Ofunato, which is a, a town in Iwate. And the person filming um, in the video, this is, you know, it's still shaking, is, it, it looks like it's probably the boss, some sort of boss man at some smallish company, I think. Um, and he is telling the employees at, at work, like, a tsunami's coming, get out, evacuate, now. And everyone heads up to higher ground. Um, then the video cuts. And it's, maybe it's a different cameraman. Maybe it's the same guy. I I can't really tell. Um, and you can just hear the terror in everyone's voice as they're watching the tsunami ripping through the central part of their town. And the cameraman just starts begging for the tsunami to stop. And of course, it doesn't. It just keeps coming. And you can just hear houses being ripped apart in the waves. In some areas of Iwate in particular, it's estimated that the tsunami reached a height of 40 meters. 40 meters is a 13-story building. So... That I that is just mind-boggling. How how does a tsunami get that big? How does the ocean rise that far above the uh, above its normal height? And I mean, a lot of it it comes down to the shape of the coast in northern Miyagi and, and Iwate. And basically, the coast in that area is it, it's kind of like fjords. So you have these long, kind of inlets. Uh, and the water just gets funneled into these narrow inlets. And that's, of course, where the towns are, where the villages are, because it's steep mountains on the side otherwise. So that where you put where do you put the fishing village? In the flat area. Where's the tsunami going to come? Right there. And it just got funneled up into these really narrow inlets and rows 20, 30, even 40 meters. You know, um, in down in, so Sendai, coastal Sendai is a much flatter area. And in, in the coastal areas of Sendai, water came as far as 10 kilometers inland. You know, 10 kilometers, what's about six miles from the coast, the water came in. You know, a lot of. A lot of the roads heading down towards the coast here in, uh, in Miyagi, they will show you there's a sign that says this is how far the tsunami came. And some of them are just like, I, where's the ocean? It's still 10 kilometers away. It's like, oh, that is, again, it's just, it's kind of mind-boggling to even think about it. So yeah, the videos, they... They still have a lot of power. Um, and there's one last video I'll mention. And again, I'll put all these in the description. And this is a very short one. It's only about 
a minute and a half, two minutes. And it's from someone, sounds like probably an older guy. Um, I'm guessing this because of the very thick rural accent. I mean, the accents are stronger with the older people in Japan. It's we I mean, That's not a thing to talk about today. But like I say, it sounds probably an older guy. And he is just up the hill from Okawa Elementary School. Now, Okawa Elementary is a school where 74 of 108 kids and 10 of 13 teachers died in the tsunami. Now, in the video, right, the guy filming from up the hill, he, he's up the hill just a bit from a big bridge that crosses where the school was. And, and he's talking with someone that he's with, and he's saying things like, I wonder if the school's okay. And you knowing what we do now, no. It, it's, it's a really tough video to watch if you know the story of Okawa Elementary School, especially. And I know I mentioned it last year, but the book is really powerful and it's really worth, it's worth mentioning it again. There's a book called Ghosts of the Tsunami uh, by Richard Lloyd Perry, and it's really, really well written, but it's absolutely heartbreaking because it tells the story of what went wrong at Okawa Elementary School. Um, TLDR version, the school didn't have a full evacuation plan in case of a tsunami, and, you know, basically... The, the, basically, the, the school evacuation plan was head to a safe place in case of tsunami. That was essentially what it said. It didn't give any specifics. And I've been to the, the site of Okawa Elementary. And I can understand why no one thought to make the tsunami evacuation plan more specific. It's not excusable. I'm not saying that it was excusable that, that no one made the plan more specific, but it's understandable. You go there, you can't see the ocean. The ocean's still a few kilometers away. I mean, yes, you do have the, the, the Kita, was it the Kitakami, yeah, the Kitakami River, which is a large, wide river, you know, perfect funnel for a tsunami. So, again, like I say, it, what happened was obviously inexcusable, but it does make some amount of sense when you see where they were that the tsunami plan basically just said evacuate to a safe location. So, yeah, 10 years. I mean, obviously, in a lot of places, a lot of healing, you know, still needs to happen. I am, I am kind of fascinated by the importance of 10. You know, thinking about this, it was the same you know, after 9-11, after the, uh, after the terrorist attacks, you know, 10 years after, it's such a big deal, 10. I mean, obviously humans like nice round numbers. Um, I'm not sure if we're hardwired that way or if it's something that's imprinted upon us culturally, right? Should this year's remembrance be any difference than, you know, should there be a difference this year compared to last year or next year, you know? probably shouldn't be but 
there will be a difference because 10, there, there's just something very important feeling about that number. You know, you know, would it, would it be different if humans had, you know, if this, if our standard number of fingers was 12? I mean, probably, but that's a weird little tangent, so I'm not going to go into it any further than that, but yeah. Anyway, let's end on a more positive note, though. So, while a lot of places certainly still need some healing to happen, there are a lot of places that are well on that path. You know, little things like the parks I mentioned, right? Those parks that are in the areas that were flooded by the tsunami, right? You know, just last weekend, I, my family and I, we went to one of those parks, and my daughter, she loves it. She loves all those parks along the coast, and they're they're very nice parks, you know? They're all fairly new for obvious reasons. And the parks are always full of families with kids who were young enough that they didn't have to live through that day. You know, there's new businesses and whatnot that keep opening up in the area as well. I mean, just last year. So there, so there's a town just south of Sendai called Natori. It's actually where the, the uh, airport is technically in Natori. Um, and Natori just opened this nice big cycling center and hotel and onsen bath place right on the coast just south it's just across the river from sendai and it's really nice you got the hotel let's say it's right on the coast you have a beautiful view of the sea there's a nice bike path along the coast i think it's like there's the longest ones a couple like five kilometer path so you know for good great for little family bike rides um there's a nice playground for families the hotel obviously also serves as a tsunami emergency high ground. So, you know, it it's a really nice addition to the coast there. You know, and just across the river from that place, you know, on the Sendai side of the river, they're working on building this big onsen and kind of farmer's market place. Um, it's set to open next year, I think. So, you know, these things are happening. The train line up the coast is mostly reconnected. There's a, there's still a section that may never be reconnected because of there just weren't there there weren't a lot of people taking this train line before the disaster, so they may not repair it. But most of the train line is fixed. You can ride most all the way through Iwate now. Um, so yeah, there there are, and a lot of the places with these the, the that have rebuilt their train stations and whatnot and rebuilt their down little small little downtowns these towns and villages along the coast they're taking the opportunity to build these new kind of like markets and eateries and other things to attract visitors right my family we have a nice list of places that we really want to check out eventually these places that are new that we want to check out you know after coronavirus calms down and after the three-year-old gets a little bit older because three is not a great age to be taking long road trips to go visit a cafe. But once she gets a little older, we'll get there. So, yeah, there are definitely positives 10 years after Magnitude 9.0. And I guess that is where I will leave it today. Please remember to subscribe, to rate and review the podcast wherever it is that you cast your pods. Um, the podcast is on pretty much all the major platforms. Uh, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora. Um, 
find some others if you need them let me know um and yeah you can find the twitter that's right i'm talking about twitter twitter for the podcast is at just another cast and you can check out a little bits of japanese history every day over there you can email the show at just another jerk podcast at gmail.com and that is all for me i'm jonathan isaacson and i'm out stay safe peace